Now, um, before I keep moving on um, and we open up the Word of God today, which I'm really excited about, um, whether you knew it or not, as financial partners of Trinity, 10% of everything that is given to this church goes to support about 13 different mission organization, nonprofit organizations that we feel like align really well with who we are and our values and our mission as a church. Because there's a lot of people doing a lot of amazing things out there, uh, and we want to be a part of it. And uh, one of those organizations, um, we're going to bring up the founder of, or the executive director of, excuse me, today. Um, but uh, we're trying to do this once a month. Where once a month we get a different mission partner up here to be able to hear from them yourself, either video or in person, um, who they are and what they're doing. And so I want you guys to give a big round of applause because uh, the executive director goes here of this organization. Teresa Larkin, come on up. Representing, formerly known as a woman's concern, now your options medical. Uh, will you tell us a bit about who you are, what you guys do, uh, and then we're going to pray for you thank after that. You. Um, thank you. So, um, your options medical, really, we, we take the biblical truth that God is the creator of all life, including life in the womb, and turn that truth into an action that is also centered on loving our neighbor. And loving our neighbor with the biblical truth is the kind of love that the Bible really espouses. So Your Options Medical takes um, the approach of combining and merging both a medical and a ministry perspective to our work. Um, for those of you who don't know, our, 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 our audience or our patients are women who are facing unplanned pregnancies and for the most part, the vast majority of the women we serve are actively seeking abortion. And so the medical component, component allows us, we are a licensed medical clinic, allows us to use a very powerful tool that many of you probably know about, ultrasound. And what the ultrasound does is it's able to reveal the truth of what the Bible tells us about life in the womb. And then the ministry part transitions from there is that every woman is really treated with compassion and with non-judgment. We, uh, we understand and recognize that what compels and brings a woman to that point is a lot of overwhelming issues, concerns, where they might be in life. And so um, the services that we provide are totally designed to recognize that just as the child in the womb is valuable to God, so is the mother and the father. They are equally valuable to God and that he has a good plan and a purpose for both of them. And so caring for both of them is really the heart of our ministry. And regardless of what a woman decides to do with her pregnancy, we also provide aftercare for that woman. So if a woman has decided to continue the pregnancy, which in um, our centers, when a woman has an ultrasound, she's over 60% of the time more likely to continue the pregnancy and parent. So we provide a lot of ongoing support for those moms if they need them. Um, and that's another area where Trinity not only has helped us financially, but also has in the past done things like diaper drives and baby showers so that we can bless them with the practical support and things that they need, um, as well as we find resources for them within the community that can help bless them. 
um, we also, if a woman is ha uh, decides to have an abortion, that doesn't mean she's not eligible for our help and support either. So she may have other children that need help and support, and we also um, are willing and, and eager to help her as well. Also part of it, because we are a ministry, is we're always looking for opportunities to share about Jesus. So every opportunity we get, every conversation actually with our uh, women, we look to seek, drop seeds, plant seeds, and encourage her to seek Jesus. Uh, and another part of our ministry that is also very important, and especially to not even necessarily our patients, but to women within the church, is what's called post-abortion support. We know that millions of women have had abortions, and about 50% of women in any church have probably experienced abortion. And so we want women to know that they are forgiven, but not only does Jesus forgive that sin when you repent of it, but he also wants you to walk in freedom from it so that there's no shame, there's no remorse, that you're not worthy anymore. So we offer um, post-abortion Bible studies as well as post-abortion one-on-one support for women too. Right on. Yeah. And if we could, man, what important work these guys are doing. Can we just reach out a hand if you feel comfortable doing so? And that's one way we like to just pray for uh, Teresa and your options medical. So, Father, first off, I thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you that you did not leave us alone, but you came into a broken world. You breathed our air in order to walk alongside of us and show us who God was. And when I think about this ministry and I think about where they're going, that they're not sitting back waiting uh, for, for women who are struggling to come to them. God, they're going to people in the most uh, broken of situations who didn't see this coming and see a potential pregnancy as almost a total break in their plans. But God, you had a plan the whole time. And you're using this ministry and these people to counsel. Using Teresa to, 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 to meet these women right where they are. To show compassion. And God, I pray uh, that you continue to open the doors wide for them to minister to more and more moms. Dads. Kids. Thank you for the work that they're doing to build people up, not shame them, condemn them, or tear them down. And I pray that your spirit would fill every staff member, every volunteer, that you give them the right words to say, that your spirit would work in powerful ways, God, because we know uh, that, that you have a plan for each of these children in the womb, each of these mothers, and each of these fathers. Lord, we know that you have a great work ahead. And I want to thank you for their consistency, their faithfulness. And I pray that you meet all their financial and resource needs as well. Because I know those are many. And for Teresa, who carries the load of this ministry on her shoulders and often feels the burden of having to fundraise and, and, and coordinate and make sure that everything stays on track, God, give her wisdom. Give her a passion and a compassion for those they're seeking to serve but also a deep understanding of your direction for her ministry. And we'll see you pour out your blessing upon them as they seek to represent you uh, among all these families. We love you, we praise you, and we're so privileged that we get to partner with them. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen. amen. Thank you, Teresa. Thank you so much. All right, good morning, everybody. 
Man, we are going to dive into God's Word now. Uh, We are starting today a six-week series unpacking an Old Testament book called Nehemiah. Now, chances are, um, you know, not many of us just go to Nehemiah on a regular basis. You know, it's not probably your your first devotional reading of every day. That's okay. But what I want to show us in the midst of this series over this next six weeks is this is a powerfully redemptive story of how God uses his people to rebuild their city. It's really a story of action. It's an invitation. It's, it's, it's a story that depicts for us what it looks like to live out our faith in a powerful way as we join in God's work of redeeming, restoring, forgiving, exactly what God is up to in and around our communities. You know, there's times that in this story things seem totally in despair, hopeless. But we'll see that our God of steadfast love never gives up. And so really, Nehemiah is a story of fresh hope. And we need a little of that right now, don't we? (laughs) I mean, over the past several months, we've looked at the state of our nation, the struggles in our families, the financial future, and a host of other problems. It's very easy for us to get overwhelmed by everything that is going on and get stuck in a sense of despair. If I had to guess... All of us have felt at some point over the last several months some sense of despair. Symptoms include being disproportionately angry, emotionally numb, mysteriously anxious. Anybody? You don't have to raise your hand. When we feel like we lose hope, meaning we're in despair, our passions fade. Our desire to self-medicate goes up. For some of us, sleep evades us. For others of us, we can never get enough of it. We need hope. We need to know who our God is, even in the midst of a despairing situation. Because truth is, as a society, what I'm feeling, and probably what a lot of you guys are feeling too, is that we're just tired. We're tired. And when we're tired, it's so easy to lose sight of hope. And so this book, this story serves as a powerful reminder of not only what God can do in us, but also what he can do through us. And so we're calling this whole series Ruin to Restoration, because that's exactly what happens here. Now, before we just jump into this story, every great story has a backdrop. It has a context. It has a background. And we need to understand, I'm going to give us... catch us up a bit as to what is going on before we even get to Nehemiah. Because the tricky thing is, if you look up Nehemiah in your Bibles, it's about right halfway through the Old Testament. But if you were to rearrange the Old Testament to make it historically chronological, you would actually place Nehemiah at the very end of the Old Testament. It's one of the last stories we receive in the Old Testament. That It goes down starting in 445 B.C., in the midst of a Persian world, right? The Middle East is conquered by the great Persians at this time in history. You know, if you've heard of great figures like Alexander the Great, the great Greek king, well, he's just a twinkle in his mother's eye right now, all right? This is still four centuries before the Romans come in and take over. This is over 400 years before Jesus is born. But if we look at 445 B.C., God's people 
the Jews are in a bad spot. Bad spot. Why? Well, to get an understanding of why fully, we need to back up another 1,700 years. To go all the way back to 2100 B.C. Now follow with me real fast because this is super important. Let's go back to the beginning of the Old Testament. Where in 2100 B.C. God shows up to a man named Abraham. And he says, Abraham, even though you and your wife haven't been able to conceive kids, I'm going to bring many descendants from you. And sure enough, a mighty people and a nation come from Abraham and Sarah. First there's Isaac. And to Isaac comes Jacob. Jacob's name is later changed to Israel. Then 500 years later, sure enough, the descendants have grown thousands and thousands. But they're enslaved in the nation of Egypt and they cry out to God. And God hears their cry and he sends a man named Moses to lead them out of Egypt into a flourishing promised land. But on the way to the promised land, he stops off in the wilderness. And God says, I'm going to bond myself to you and you guys to me in something he calls a covenant And a covenant is that he gives them his law. And he says, if you guys obey this, you're going to flourish in the new land. If you don't, you're going to end up scattered across the nations. Well, around 900 B.C., you see that they are flourishing. They have some righteous kings, King David, King Solomon. But that doesn't last very long. Eventually, the people's hearts harden to God. And the kingdom of Israel splits in two. You got the northern kingdom and you got the southern kingdom. The north was called Israel and Samaria. The south was called Judah, capital in Jerusalem. Well, the north is utterly wicked. There's not one righteous king. And so eventually Assyria comes and conquers them in 722 BC. The southern kingdom, Judah, have some wicked kings and some righteous kings. But eventually their hearts harden as well. And God allows the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar to come and destroy the city of Jerusalem, knocking down its walls and burning the city. And the people are carted off to exile after all. God was patient for a long time with his people, but eventually judgment came. But that's not the end of the story, is it? We know that's not the end of the story. Because if you go all the way back, you remember Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 3, God says, if you disobey my law, I will scatter you. But if you return to me, I will gather you again. And sure enough, 539 B.C., the Cyrus the Great and the Persians come and destroy Babylon and they take over. And Cyrus issues a decree saying the Jews are allowed to return to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple and their city. And they do just that. A first wave of Jews go back to Jerusalem. They rebuild the, t- the, the, the temple under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Jeshua. And there they are and they're about to rebuild the walls that would be the defense around the city. But all of a sudden, boom, it abruptly stops. Why? Because the enemies of Israel started spreading a conspiracy theory all the way to the king of Persia, saying they're going to revolt against Persia if you allow them to build that city. So the king of Persia at that time, Artaxerxes, issues a decree, a cease and desist, boom, done. You're not allowed to build your wall. And so the people of God are hanging out in Jerusalem. They have their temple, but they have no defenses. And an ancient city without a wall is like a wild, wild west without Clint Eastwood, right? Like, they got nobody, nobody has their back. They're always susceptible to, to attack, to pillage. And so they're in a state of hopelessness and despair. But 
God knows a Jewish man named Nehemiah who loves him. And he's about to use him. Problem is, Nehemiah lives a thousand miles away from Jerusalem in Susa, which is the winter capital of Persia. How can God possibly use this guy? Well, we're about to see. Over the next six weeks, we'll unpack how God uses Nehemiah in a powerful, powerful way. But before we get to the action of Nehemiah, the main point, and I got one point today and then I'm out of your way. One point. The one point I want to make is what God builds through us depends on what we first allow him to build in us. What God builds through us depends on what we allow him to first build in us. You guys ready to dive in? You guys ready to dive in? All right, let's do it. Nehemiah chapter 1. Now, if you're looking for Nehemiah, if you brought your own Bibles, that's awesome. Nehemiah is about a third of the way through your Bible. It comes after 1st, 2nd Chronicles and Ezra, and it comes before Esther and Job. So if you're looking for Nehemiah, you can find it there, about a third of the way through your Bible. Nehemiah chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Follow with me, either in your own Bibles or on the screens. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, which is roughly November, December, in the 20th year, probably the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' rule. As I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I may pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which have sinned. Satan doesn't like God's word. All right. Here we go. Where are we here? All right. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand." O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. All right, let's pray and then we'll jump in. So pray after me. Say, God, open my heart, open my mind, transform my life. Amen.
And Father, I pray that as I open up your word, that you allow this to be clear from you. Not from me, not my words, but may they be your words. And God, may they fulfill the purpose for which you sent them, knowing that whenever you speak, things change. Whenever you make a promise, it is as good as done. And so may we receive that as from you. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen again. So, as we'll see, as we dive into uh, Nehemiah, as we dive into Nehemiah, you'll see right away that Nehemiah is about action. This guy is not just a talk about it guy. He's a get it done kind of guy. Anybody else relate with that? I know that sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't. When my wife says, Kirk, I have a problem, and I immediately jump to fix it, find out that's not always the right answer. But apart from that, one thing I love about hardy New Englanders is New Englanders are about getting it done, right? And so is Nehemiah. Nehemiah is your kind of guy in that sense. However, before Nehemiah jumps to action, something else happens first. Because before God is going to build something through Nehemiah, he first has to do something in Nehemiah. And for us as the church of Jesus, the people of God, before we just jump out into action trying to change the world, what is vital for our own ministry? You're going to see just that. But let me start here. Before God builds through us, he must teach us to see the broken with his compassion. Before God builds through us, he must teach us to see the broken, to identify with the broken, with his compassion. So we see that after traveling 1,000 miles, Nehemiah's brother shows up in Susa and reports regretfully to Nehemiah, hey, people aren't doing well in Jerusalem. It says, as he's describing this in verse 3, he says, they're in great trouble and shame. And that original Hebrew word for Great trouble is the strongest possible Hebrew word we have. It's a total disgrace. It's a total mess. It's a, it's a, it, like it is complete a despair. And it would be great if they could just build that wall. But the thing is, again, like we talked about, King Artaxerxes issued a decree based on a whacked conspiracy theory that they could not build the wall because he was afraid that they were going to revolt. But an ancient city without a wall is open to any of their enemies pillaging, attacking. Nothing is ever safe. Now, to try to give us the best comparison I can to an ancient city without walls. An ancient city without walls is like a city today without solid, well-trained law enforcement. I mean, imagine if you call 911 in an emergency and there's no one on the other end to pick up. How do you feel about that? Not too good. What happens to communities like that? It's chaos. When I, uh, this week I read a story about a business in Camden, New Jersey that was robbed. But because Camden, New Jersey couldn't hire enough a sufficient police force, they said, ah, yeah, just take some pictures and we'll get out there maybe eventually. What happens to businesses like that? They can never build back up. They're never safe. They live in this constant state of despair. So again, Jerusalem was like the Wild West without Clint Eastwood, right? Like, like this is the state of things. And when Nehemiah hears and gets word of this, what's his first response, though? Is it just to get busy? No. 
before he does anything, when he hears of their suffering, Nehemiah stops and just mourns in compassion. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Then when Nehemiah heard of their suffering, his impulse was what? Compassion. Now the word compassion comes from two Latin words, compassio, which means to suffer with. And what's boggles my mind about this is here is Nehemiah and he is a cupbearer for the king of Persia meaning that he gets to taste regularly the world's greatest wines before the king does he is trusted he has a position he has respect he has all the stuff that the world could possibly give someone at that time in history around him. But in that moment, it's as if he is teleported to Jerusalem, sitting alongside his people, feeling what they're feeling, and grieving with them. He's feeling their pain. This reminds me very much of 400 years later. When Jesus comes up to the city of Jerusalem, before he goes into Jerusalem to give his life, before he does any action, he pauses outside the city and just sobs. He stops to feel the pain of the very people he's about to serve. And that's kind of a shocking response to us, isn't it? It certainly is for me. Because I realize, and compassion is hard. It's far easier for me. It's far easier for me just to treat people as projects instead of human beings to love. I mean, how easy would it have been for Nehemiah just in the opulence of his palace a thousand miles away just to say, you know what, like what happens in Jerusalem doesn't ultimately affect my life, so what business is that of mine? It would have been so easy for Nehemiah to say, well, their sin earned that, right? Like, like, so they deserve what they're getting right now. And just completely take his hands off of it. Or if he felt a little bad about it, he could just say, you know what? I'll just send Jerusalem some money. That should be, and that would have been nice. But that wouldn't have actually solved the problem. He could have started a Feed Jerusalem campaign. Again, which would have been nice. But the problem was infrastructure, not food. He could have started a political campaign. Because it's very easy to hold a political position without actually knowing the people affected by it. And it was a political problem in a sense. All of those actions would have allowed Nehemiah to do something without actually opening his heart to them. And if, but if we jump to action to fix people before listening to their pain, we can easily end up spilling a lot of energy thinking we are helping but not actually changing anything. But when we come alongside people in compassion, we will see what actually heals. So in the 1990s, some of you may have heard this story, but in the 1990s, uh, there was a pastor named Jeffrey Brown, Reverend Jeffrey Brown. 
who moved to the area south of Boston, Roxbury, Mattapan, so our own backyard. And in the 90s, for those who were around Boston that time, this area south of Boston, was, was, that was one of the most violent seasons in the life of that, that, that city. They had roughly, I think, 152 homicides, 1,100 gun-related shootings in one year. I mean, that, think about that. 152 homicides, that's like, that's like a, a murder once every two to three days. And many of them were juvenile-related. And Jeffrey Brown, he actually gives a TED Talk in 2015. He talks about how all of a sudden his ministry, he started doing a lot of funerals for 16, 17, 18-year-old boys. And he and the clergy in town knew we got to do something about this. So they immediately jumped into action. They held events. They held rallies inside their churches. They gave lectures on peace. But over time, nothing was changing. And finally, Jeffrey Brown realized that he had been hearing from everybody else except those who were actually committing the crimes. So he and a few other pastors decided that they were going to go to the most dangerous street corners in Roxbury, Mattapan area. And they were going to set up shop and they were going to, from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. and just observe what was going on. And they did that and eventually they started striking up conversations and listening. And when Jeffrey Brown tells a story, he says, that is when the movement of change really began. He says, that's when the partnership started. Between them and the law enforcement, them and, and the youth in that area. And in fact, as that came on, as they consistently did that over several years, it got to a year where there were zero juvenile-related deaths one whole year. They saw crime decrease by 79%. Why? Because instead of just jumping to action, they paused to listen, to understand. To, to feel their pain to come alongside of them. And isn't that such a beautiful picture of who our God is? Isn't it? That we have a God who did not say, leave us in our condemnation and say, well, you're getting what you deserve, world. But he came into the midst of our brokenness. He walked our earth. He felt our pain. And he went a step further than Nehemiah or anybody else. He didn't just suffer with us. Jesus suffered for us. What God builds through us depends on what we allow him to first build in us. And as Nehemiah allowed their suffering to penetrate his heart, where does he turn next? Because again, he, doesn't, he still doesn't jump to action right away. He listened for the source of their pain, but what next? You see, because sometimes it's so easy when we start to feel compassion or to just jump right into the problems of this world, but then find ourselves completely overwhelmed by them. And because of that, it's crucial what Nehemiah does next. See, before God builds through us, he must be the center of the redemptive story, not us. Too many well-meaning Christians motivated in genuine compassion, have stepped out into the sea of suffering and been crushed by its waves. 
I mean, how many of us here, when we start to feel deeply and we feel the heart of God for someone, either it could be someone who, who's coming out of an addiction, so you want to alleviate poverty, you want to help get somebody back on their feet, you want to share the truth of Jesus with somebody. But then once we finally take that step out, we find ourselves just, oh my goodness, this is more than I can possibly handle. Years back, years ago, I got a call from a friend I'll call Charlie. That's no one here. Don't worry about that. <laughs> it's no one watching online either. But a friend named Charlie. And Charlie told me that he had just been kicked out of his house and he was homeless. And so as a good Christian, oh, okay, all right, buddy. All right, let's find you a place to live. Let's, 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 let's take care of this right away. We're going to get you back on your feet. And I can already see the testimony that would be shared in church later. That homeless man gets back on his feet thanks to Kirk. I mean Jesus, Right? And you know what happened? You can probably guess. A few months into trying to get him back on his feet, I was like, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. And I was wanting to completely step away from the relationship altogether because I was so frustrated that nothing I was doing was working. But then I felt like one day in the midst of my frustration, God spoke to my heart and he says, have you ever just sat down with him and actually heard what was going on? Well, I, I don't need to, God. Like, he needs a home. But, but no, no, have you actually built a relationship with him? And on top of that, did, did you ever ask me, meeting God, what my role was for you in this? And I realized I was so busy trying to be his savior that I never stopped to pause and ask God, what is actually my role? And we see from the start here, Nehemiah understood that the real Savior was not him. See, from the, he places God at the rightful center of this rescue operation, not him. And that's crucial for us to see because some of you in here, you are feeling overwhelmed by problems. You are feeling the weight and the burden of society, and you don't know what to do about it. And Nehemiah's prayer here from verses 5 to 11, man, it's a beautiful picture of how we ourselves can respond and can pray. How does Nehemiah pray here? Well, first, instead of being overwhelmed by his circumstances, he gets perspective by recognizing who God is. It's so easy for the waves of, of society and the problems around us just to seem way bigger than us. And they are. But they're not bigger than God. And if you'll notice, Nehemiah in his prayer starts by saying, God, you are great, you are awesome. Meaning you are able to do something about this. But God, you are also a God of covenant, steadfast love. Meaning that you're also willing. He's able and he's willing. But then next, he goes... And gets proper perspective on who he is. While God is a God who always stands up and is true to his covenant, his promises, Nehemiah sees that he and his people have not been. And he moves from there to confess the sin of his people. And not just their sin with him separated looking down on them, but he includes himself in that confession. See, before we can actually change anybody, we, we, we can't see ourselves as better than them. 
Nehemiah knows that before he can go to Jerusalem and actually help them, if he comes like an elitist who hasn't sinned and who doesn't deal with the things that they struggle with, then he's going to have no ability to actually understand them. So he identifies with them even in their sin. And he realizes that if he sinned just like they have, he can't be their savior. Proper perspective on God himself. And then third, he then goes and turns to God's word, his promises. And he draws right out of Deuteronomy chapter 30. He knew that the people deserved exile and they deserved many of the situations that they found themselves in now. But he found in Deuteronomy 30 that promise that God said, If I will scatter you, but if you do return to me, I will gather you again. And so he holds on to that promise. And for us, when we feel overwhelmed, do we have the promises of God available to us as well? We know that we have a God who came to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. That's not my words, that's his words. And we can hang our hat on those. And as we get proper perspective on God, who we are, we remind ourselves of his word. Then last but not least, with Nehemiah asks God to go before him and give him the ability to serve him. He knows who his God is. He knows only his God can be the Savior. That means that Nehemiah is the servant. And here he is, knowing that rebuilding the city is going to be hard. And it's actually going to end up being even more difficult than he realizes. But the perspective that's going to sustain him in the end is if he comes to this project not as the Savior, but as the servant of God. And if he has the faith to believe that God is able, willing, promises, and will work in his circumstance, and the circumstance of his people. Nehemiah isn't jumping into this project because he wants a university or a street named after him. right? He's not in this for his glory. He wants God to get the credit. And the thing is, God says that he looks to and fro throughout the earth, looking to strongly support anyone whose heart completely belongs to him. And that is exactly what we see in the way that Nehemiah prays. What's interesting is I don't know if Nehemiah just had this heart before he started praying or if in the process of prayer his heart changed. Wherever we start... We see the way that he walks from despair, ultimately to faith in who his God is. And what God builds through us depends on what we allow him to first build in us. So then, in the compassion of God, as his servants, when God is at the center, we can believe him for things that we can't do on our own. So here Nehemiah knows that Jerusalem's not going to be safe It can't build itself up until it has a wall. But it can't build a wall until King Artaxerxes, the Persian king, reverses his decree, his cease and desist order. Problem is, Persian kings almost never go against their own decrees. Never. So Nehemiah is looking at a pretty impossible circumstance from his perspective. Because Artaxerxes has to be convinced. Before they can do a thing, he has to convince the king. 
But if you look at the way his prayer ends, I love it. It's very subtle. But at the very end of his prayer, he says, Grant him, he's talking about himself in third person. He says, Grant him, your servant, mercy in the sight of this man. Did you catch that little subtle thing at the end there? Who's that man? The king. In this moment, with God in proper perspective, Nehemiah realizes the king is just a man like anybody else. The circumstances that seem so impossible, that seem impossible to reverse, he's a king, he's a man like anybody else. And at that point, he steps out, and in chapter 2, he petitions the king, who amazingly gives Nehemiah permission, going against his own decree, to go to Jerusalem and to begin to rebuild the wall. And he knows the road ahead is not going to be smooth. Of course it's not going to be smooth. But he took the initial step of compassion, not as the hero, but as a servant. What God builds through us depends on what we allow him to first build in us. So my question to us, church, is what is the burden on your heart? What is that thing that feels so heavy that you've been carrying around for some of you for years or months? For some of you, you may feel, I know many of us in this church, we feel the burden of knowing how many kids in our own backyard are defenseless because they do not have a consistent family to care for them. They are, they're just tossed about in the midst of the foster care system without anybody to protect them, support them, surround them. Others of you, you share the same burden of your options medical Knowing how many women feel like they have no option but to get an abortion. And how many kids don't have a chance of whether they will live. Others of you, you recognize in this nation that there's still millions of people who grow up in the midst of poverty. Who grow up in the midst of abuse. And in broken situations. Who, who have potential but have no opportunity to actually rise up in the midst of their potential. And you're wondering what in the world can we possibly do? Others of you, the reason that the thing that keeps you up at night... Is that family member, that kid, that friend caught in addiction or living a lifestyle that you know is consistently harming them? Guys, these are people without walls. And I know you could name a host of other things that I can't possibly get to right now. But what is that burden on your heart and what do we do about it? Actually, let me reframe that question. As those who were once dead in our own sin, walking in the desires of our heart, own heart, blind to the love of God, unable to save ourselves, until our God came to be born to walk this earth beside us and to give his very life for us, what can we do in the midst of our broken down world? Not approach it as naive heroes trying to fix everybody. But we step into this world as our Savior stepped into ours. Walking alongside people. Praying for them. Serving our neighbors. Consistently saying, God, I'm not the Savior, but you are. You are willing. And I believe that you are able. And that you're going to use me. Just show me, Lord, as your servant, what is my next step? But may I, we allow the pain, the suffering of people to actually penetrate our hearts and allow that to be the thing that moves us forward. 
What God builds through us depends on what we allow him to first build in us. Can you stand up with me? We're going to pray. Lord Jesus. Oh man, if I'm honest, this message, it's been, <laughs> it's been heavy on my heart all week. Because, Lord, I realize how easy it is for me to live in comfort and convenience and to just open my eyes to the problems and circumstances that actually allow me to remain unchanged. But, Lord, I, when I think about who you are and what it is that you've done for us, that when I was hopeless, that when I did not know you and I had no way of finding you, you came and revealed yourself to me. And because of your compassion, you opened up the way to life in your own death. That you felt our pain and our suffering. And you even went ahead of us and took on our death so that we would not have to. So that we could live forever with you. And Lord, I know one thing, that if you still have us on this earth, that if you woke us up this morning, that if we have your breath in our lungs, then there's a reason why we are here. And it is not simply to serve ourselves, nor is it to, to look out at the problems of the world and just despair. But you, the God of heaven who sits enthroned over the flood, you are able and willing to do things we cannot possibly imagine. And, the, and the, the thing that boggles my mind is you want to do these things through your people. And so, Lord, will you start by opening up my heart, open up my eyes. Allow me, instead of living a guarded life, may I open it wide to you. Instead of trying to be a savior, may I just be willing to say, Lord, I'm your servant. You're the savior. Lead us in the next step, whatever that is. And may you take this word and may you speak to each heart here in a way that only you can. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen. Let's sing this final.